Good morning, church. They're, they're a much uh, more eager audience than y'all sometimes, right? They're amen in and answering questions. So uh, I know we're Southern Baptists, but if y'all ever feel like shouting something, you know, it's okay, right? It's okay. Say amen. Let the preacher know he's doing a good job. I'm going to say, I got it. I like to say I'm, I'm, I'm charismatic with a seatbelt, right? Like, all right. We can do the Baptist holding plates, right? We can do that. Uh, I mean, it's Super Bowl Sunday, so if you want to give me a touchdown every now and then, that's all right. Uh, some of y'all had suggested, since it is Super Bowl Sunday, uh, I've been tagged in this post quite a few times, that if your pastor makes a good point, uh, feel free to dump Gatorade on him to celebrate. <laughs> That's why I specifically wrote a sermon that has no good points. So if you got your Bible, turn to Acts, the second chapter. See what I started? <laughs> I've lost control of the crowd. I've lost control. <laughs> so uh, what we do here at Katusa First is we like to work our way through a book of the Bible at a time. We do that so we don't skip the hard stuff. And we like to wrestle with all of what God has said. What I really want to do is help you to see the big picture of the Bible. When I was growing up in church, I knew the story of Moses, I knew the story of Noah, and I knew the story of Samson, and it felt like those stories just repeated every year in every Sunday school class with maybe a little bit more detail based upon age. But I never understood how all of this worked together. I didn't know the big picture. And as I began to understand the big picture, God became more alive to me. I go, oh, He's painting this beautiful story of redemption throughout history, and I'm a part of it. And so we like to, when we look at the Bible, I really want to help you begin to see the big picture. I feel like I succeed in my job is if when you go home and you begin to read the Bible on your own, and that's my expectation, right? Why settle for the echo when you can hear the voice yourself? You can open up your Bible, you can read God's Word, instead of just showing up on a Sunday and hearing me read it to you. Why settle for the echo when you can hear the voice yourself? My hope is, is as, as we role model how to read Scripture, slow down, break it up a little bit, consider it fine food, not fast food, that your own Scripture reading time would come alive and you would grow, not because you showed up on a Sunday, but because you showed up on a Monday, in your own life, in your own quiet time, and allowed God to speak to you through his word. Amen to that? Okay, um, so let me just tell you a little bit about what Acts is. Uh, we just started, we're going to be in Acts 2 today, and Acts is, it's the story of an invasion, so I know there's been a lot of balloons flying uh, over the U.S. right now, and the news is like, we're being invaded, right? There, there's all this stuff going on. But the book of Acts is a story of God's invasion. Think of it as like heaven's invasion into earth. It's how God is beginning to change things. And when we talk about with this, the, the children down here about being broken, and one of the questions that we should ask ourselves is, how does God change the world? Well, he does it by changing individuals. 
And this is part of this great invasion of the kingdom of God breaking in into our space and time and God beginning the great reversal, taking things back as close as they can until he returns to the way things were meant to be. I've stressed this over and over again. So in the book of Genesis, there's the Garden of Eden and there's a tree. And they're at peace with God, they're at peace with each other, they're at peace with the world. And then you go all the way to the last book of the Bible in Revelations, and what do you find? You find the tree again. And when Jesus Christ has returned and everything has been made new, there's the tree, we're at peace with God, we're at peace with the world, and we're at peace with each other. It is not plan B, it is God making his original dream come true. And oftentimes... People say, well, why doesn't God just do that right now? If he has the power to make everything new, why the delay? Why is he waiting to return when he could come back and end all the heartache and all the pain? I think it is not a power struggle at all between God and the enemy. I don't think it's a power struggle at all. It's not like the, the forces of darkness are so powerful that, that God has been wrestling this whole time to push the enemy back. I don't think that's what it is. I think it's a character battle. I think the enemy accused God, and we see this in the book of Job, where he says they're only good to you. They only love you because you give them stuff. And God, using the example of Job, teaches us that, no, they worship me because I'm worthy. I'm worthy. And, and once Job begins to see that, he worships God in spite of all the bad things that have happened to him. So there's this character battle going on, and each time one of you becomes a believer and follower of Christ, not because he's promised you health, wealth, and prosperity, but because he has been good, and he is a good God worthy of worship and praise. We push back the darkness a little bit more. And now God originally wanted Adam and Eve to partner with him in this building of his world, his kingdom. And he still wants that. He wants you and I partnering with him to build what he originally intended. And so Acts 2 is not the first stage because we have the prophets in the Old Testament. We have the nation of Israel. We have Abraham. We have all of those stories. And that is God beginning to have this reversal go on. But then it really culminates with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And now he is going to empower all of his followers with the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Acts 2 is one of the most misused sections of scripture in the Bible. Especially in today's time. Um, let's read, and you, maybe you'll understand why. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When you got it, would you say, I got it? When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. 
And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we, uh, we hear each one of us in his own native language? So let's pause right there and talk a little bit about what's going on. This is uh, Pentecost means essentially 50, right? So Penta is 50. It has been 50 days since Easter. So that's where the term Pentecost comes from. It just means 50 days after Easter, the disciples are waiting. They're not exactly sure what they're waiting for. They just knew that Jesus said, I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you someone that can help you accomplish this goal. And then some really weird stuff starts to happen. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the weirder it is, usually the more important it is in Scripture. But we just kind of go, well, well, that's weird. Why tongues like fire? Why a, a large gust of wind? And why the other languages? And I think we can kind of break down each one of those a little bit, but maybe if we just allow the Old Testament to kind of testify to some of this. And we'll get there. But first, I, I want to say... Um, I want to be careful how I word this because a lot of you are going to have like friends and neighbors that believe in a very current view of Pentecost as though this is what is normative, right? Is that these kind of miracles are what we should be expecting all the time. And there are churches all over Oklahoma right now where there are church services going on where people would be speaking during the service in what they would call tongues, and they'd say, see, this is just, we're a Pentecostal church. We believe that Pentecost is a normative thing that we should see all the time. And here's what I appreciate about that. There is a hunger and a thirst for the active works of God in their life. And that's a positive thing. Each one of us should hunger and thirst for the active, um, for, the, for the supernatural to seem somewhat natural, right? To, to see God actually interact with our world in an incredible way. So I appreciate the hunger they have for that, but I think it is a misuse and misguided view of Scripture. Because Pentecost, especially as we break it down, we'll see it has a very specific purpose and is not meant to be normative. There are going to be tons of miracles in the book of Acts. Mainly because there's not the New Testament. It is God building his foundation to show this outside world that this move of God is actually real. It, one of the ways that even non-charismatic churches do it is when we plan a revival service. It's, it's kind of an oxymoron, right? Like, we're, hey guys, we're going to have a revival service. Well, revival is not something you plan. It's something that, an act of God that just happens. Uh, right now, there is a good revival taking place uh, at Asbury University. Asbury University, and I believe it's in uh, Kansas. They are on uh, day three of nonstop prayer of college students. And it's not the big show and the big scene where everybody's falling on the ground speaking in tongues. It's just a bunch of young men and women. For whatever reason, they were having a normal church service. And everybody began to repent, and they fell down, and they are on like hour 68 of prayer. Just nonstop, all these young adults. And this university has a history of about every 50 years of a revival breaking out that then spreads throughout the U.S. So I read that, and I get very excited. I'm like, man, could God 
have another great awakening in our time? The United States has had moments of great awakening. The Reformation uh, impacted the great awakening in the U.S. Where all of a sudden, just God opened up his arms and opened up the eyes of millions of people. And they began to repent, and the churches were just overflowing with people repenting of their sin and choosing to follow God. And they say about every 500 years is when there is a Another great revival. Well, we're right on time for that. And so I'm excited. I would love to see God work, not in other churches only, but here in this church as well. And there are days when we give an invitation and we just see people down here kneeling and nothing moves my heart more than to see people responding to the preaching and the word of God. And that's kind of like laying the foundation for God to do an even greater work. So I, I, I just, that's a long way to say this isn't normative, and I'll explain why, okay? Um, tongues is one of the most misused spiritual gifts. The Bible is very clear in how tongues should be used. There should always be an interpreter. It should always be in order, right? Um, and so if nobody's interpreting, then I don't think it's a real thing. And I'm very skeptical of those who say, oh, it should look like this because it comes from a group that has the most fake miracles, right? The most forced experience of the supernatural. So when I say that this makes a little bit more sense if we view it through an Old Testament lens, here's what I mean. In the Old Testament, whenever a temple is inaugurated, right? So we have like the Temple of Solomon being inaugurated. There are mystical things that happen at that moment, there is a cloud that fills the temple. There are flames. There's fire that begins to be lit that never goes out. So we have some of the same imagery in the inauguration of Old Testament temples. And it's not exact for exact, but it's very similar. And my understanding and my conviction is that these signs are just the inauguration of the new temple. So what's the new temple? You are. You're the temple, right? And I, I know I have tattoos, uh, in case some of you didn't know, but when I first started getting them, I had people that say, you know, you're not supposed to do that. Your body is a temple. I'm like, have you ever seen a temple? There's stained glass all over the place, paintings on the ceilings, right? So I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to get a little bit closer. Um, that's not what it means by your body is a temple, it means it is the place where the Spirit of God dwells. And I love when you read in the Old Testament, it said that God dwelt in darkness because in the, the, the temple you had the Holy of Holies and the curtains were all around it and no light got in. But He doesn't dwell in darkness anymore. He dwells in you and I. And so what is happening here in Acts, we can say it is not normative because you only dedicate a temple once. You don't have to dedicate a temple every single day. You do it one time. The dedication of the, when Solomon built his temple, his glory filled it. And this was a big deal for, for the Jews. Can you imagine when they built the temple and all of a sudden God was not distant? God wasn't distant. We could look, and he's right there. He's right there in that temple. 
And what's fascinating about that is how excited they were that God was just on top of the hill. And they could go and their priests could go in there and, and make um, restitution for a nation. That he could do the ceremonies that brought them forgiveness. And they would journey from all over to come to the temple to be close to their God. Can you imagine how mind-blowing it would be to them to say he's no longer on the hill. He's closer than he could ever be. He's inside you. This is one of the things that excites the early Christians so much. That the temple had become unnecessary because they were the temple. So uh, that's where we get the wind and the fire. But what about the tongues? How does the Old Testament help us understand the speaking in, in different languages? If you were asked an ancient Jew, why is the world the way that it is, they would give you more than just the fall of Adam and Eve. They always had a two-part answer. They would say it was the fall of Adam and Eve, and they would put, point to the Tower of Babel. They would say this is why, because it was division of mankind. If you're not familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel, it was uh, human beings had come together and they were basically uh, building this tower so that they could go and they could get God and they could bring him down and essentially make him a genie. Like, we think God's up there, we're going to build a tower big enough, we're going to go get him and make him do what we want. And so God separates mankind, and he gives each one of them a different language. Now, look at Acts chapter 2, where we just left off. I'm going to get half of these wrong. Verse 9. Parthians and Medes, Alamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygra and Pamphylia. I always get that wrong. Egypt, you guys try that. Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to uh, Cyrene and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So, at the, the day that Pentecost happens is also a Jewish festival, and it was the largest Jewish festival. And people would be coming from all over to their homeland, and all of a sudden they're hearing the gospel in their own language. This is the reversal of the Tower of Babel where God had separated mankind and gave them different languages. Now he has brought people from all over, and they happen to be here on the same day, and they hear, what is that noise? What is going on? And here you have not just the disciples, but 120 other that were in the upper room. And all of a sudden, they just begin to shout. And he goes, wait, they're not from my hometown. They're not from my neighborhood, but they speak my language. They begin to listen to the messages being taught, and they go, oh my gosh, what is going on? And we'll learn later that thousands upon thousands of people come to know Christ right at that very moment. This is heaven invading earth, turning the world back to the way it was meant to be. Divided is united. 
those separated by language and borders and nations and kings and different gods and different cultures and all of those things that divide you and I. You know, this is the United States of America, but here lately it feels like the divided states of America because either you're left or you're right or you're pro this or you're anti this and everybody is separated. Well, guess what fixes the separation of human beings? The Spirit of God uniting us. We're only the United States of America if we were united under the banner of heaven, if we allow heaven to invade earth. And this is what begins to change. It is the supernatural interacting with the natural, making supernatural changes in human beings. This is how you were changed. The supernatural invaded your heart and mind, opened your eyes to your sinfulness. And some of you weren't even looking for God, and all of a sudden you're like, I better go to church. Something's something's going on in my life. Something's wrong. Something's missing. There's a hole in my heart. I don't know what can fix it. And then you come and you hear the message, and some tingling about you, you just go, I don't know what it is. A lot of you got saved. You don't even know the Bible. All you knew was... Jesus loves me, paid for my sins. Okay, I'm in. And he's begun to grow you from that. But that was all, and that's all you needed to know. But it began the transformation in your life. And we use the phrase personal savior a lot, don't we? Is Jesus your personal savior? You don't find that phrase anywhere in scripture. You know that? Is he your personal savior? Absolutely. He loves you personally, right? Does he care for you personally? Absolutely. But was it meant to be personal? Not at all. Their personal relationship with God had cultural impact on everything around them. It wasn't just for them, as we tend to make our faith. We made faith a private matter. Oh, it's just my faith. I don't really talk about my faith. It's rude, it's rude to talk about your faith. It's, it's just like it's rude to talk about politics at the dinner table, right? We just don't talk about those things. But that's never what faith was meant to be. Faith isn't just strictly a personal thing. How could it be? How could it be personal that I was dead and now I'm alive? That I was lost and now I've been found and I was blind and I can see? If that if physically happened to you where you were blind and you could actually see all of a sudden because of Jesus Christ, are you going to keep that to yourself? How could you ever be quiet about it? No. In the same way, your faith is not meant to be personal. It's meant to be transformational for the rest of the world. You say, how does God fix this broken world? Our nation is broken. Uh, Maybe your house is broken. Maybe your family is broken. And you go, God, how do you change this? Well, it begins by him changing you, the supernatural invading the natural. And as you are obedient to the things of God, things begin to to change. Let me finish with this. Turn over to Romans 8. Just the very next book of the Bible. I didn't tell you where yet. <laughs> Romans 8.11. Yeah, you got it. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies 
through his spirit who dwells in you. I need to read that one more time, okay? Because it's really good. It's really good. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, which is just, it's God. And one of the ways people say, how do you know the Trinity is true? I say, who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, here it says the spirit. We also read elsewhere, it says, God raised him from the dead. And then Jesus says, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise myself from the dead. So you got God the Father, Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ all raising himself from the dead. One God, three persons. But it says the spirit that was involved in bringing Jesus back to life. Lungs, like air feeling his lungs as he takes that breath and the angels roll the stone away. That same spirit lives in you. What a weird thing. It's weird. It's powerful. But what do I do with that? What, what does that mean? How do I feel that? How do I, how do I use this? He tells us. He says, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. What do I do with the spirit that has been put inside of me? I live. I'm alive. I can live life the way nobody else can. You have more freedom than you've ever thought. I, I repeat this because sometimes that's the only way I learn things. Has Christ paid for my past sins? There's a lot of them. They were nailed to the cross. But what about my future sins? Has he paid for those as well? Okay, so... My past is taken care of. My future is taken care of. But what about my needs? Does, surely God won't supply all my needs, will he? Wait, there's, an, there's a very specific verse <laughs> that says God will supply all my needs. So my past is taken care of and my future is taken care of. So what does that mean for today? I can actually live in freedom for today. Not anxious and nervous about, oh, well, what's tomorrow going to bring? You know, God says don't be anxious a lot. He says don't let your hearts be troubled. We just spent a couple of weeks talking about the peace of God on this search for the peace that surpasses all understanding. The Holy Spirit that lives within you wants to make you alive and actually live a life that begins to change everything around you. The purpose of Acts, especially the part that we just read, is not about the signs and wonders. People get confused and they think it's all about the miracles. It's never about the magic show. It's about what happens to people on the inside. God no longer dwells in a temple made of stone. He dwells inside of you. And you, you're changing. You're becoming different, each one of you. God is working in your life to change you right now. And that's the supernatural invading earth and affecting the natural. I'm going to pray. I want you today, as much as you might celebrate your team winning or all of this stuff, uh, my kids, bless their heart, uh, Cohen comes, Dad, who are you cheering for in the Super Bowl? I was like, is that this week? And we say, if there's football on my TV, someone stole my TV. Because it's not on at my house. I think we're going to try to watch it today. I'm just going to have to be calling some of you, but like, hey, what just happened? I don't understand this game, right? Sorry, football is just not my game. Um, 
And some of you get excited about that. But I, I want you to maybe spend a week thinking about what does it mean to have the spirit that raised God from the dead dwelling in you? And when was the last time that you saw the supernatural impact your life in a natural way? Doesn't mean you fall on the floor like a fish or you speak in tongues. There's, there's so many ways that the supernatural invades your life on a day-to-day basis. Maybe it's just a decision you have to make. Maybe it's just something you're worried about. Maybe there's an expectation that you have for the next week, the next month. You put all your hopes and dreams in this thing, and if this thing doesn't work out, then you're going to be frustrated. Maybe just turning that over to God and allow Him to change your heart. That's supernatural. I'm going to pray. Take a time of response to think about the things that we just read this morning. And... um, The band will play a song during that time of response. Afterwards, you'll see people make their way on either side. We take communion here every week because all of this change that happens is because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He is the one that has set us free. So we take communion, which is symbolic of the eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood, right? Early Christians were thought to be cannibals. (laughs) They used to make fun of them because they didn't understand what we were doing, but that Christ was broken so you don't have to be. His blood was spilt to purchase your freedom.